0: Welcome to Harper Academic Calling, our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader, a behind the scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well loved favorites to up and coming debut writers about their books. journalist who has written and reported for, among others, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and the Atlantic. She has also appeared on media outlets such as CNN Newsroom and NPR's On Point and Weekend Edition. In an ordinary age, she uses expert research, interviews with young adults, and her own personal experiences to speak to the pressures that young adults face to pursue their so-called best lives. She argues that these pressures are not only unfair and outdated, they actually harm young adults by insisting on benchmarks that are both unattainable and run counter to the pursuit of a happy and fulfilling life. We spoke with Rainsford about the book, including her experience writing it, how the COVID-19 pandemic affected the book, and what young people can hope to take away from it. All right, so joining us on our podcast right now, we have Rainsford Stauffer, and she's the author of An Ordinary Age. Thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me today.
0: Of course. Of course. Uh, So to start off, I want to talk a little bit about you. So you mentioned in the book several times that you dropped out of college. Um, So can you talk to us a little bit about that experience and perhaps how, how did that shape the book?
1: Absolutely. I think it shaped what would eventually become the book through how it shaped my life. Um, I grew up as a ballet dancer and knew that I wanted to either dance or work in choreography or somehow in the arts and ended up getting injured in my late teens, which is a, a pretty crucial time to sustain an injury like that when you want that to be your career. And I rerouted very quickly. Um, The wise thing to do in retrospect would have been to take classes at a community college to figure out what I really wanted my life to look like. And instead, I felt a lot of pressure that if I didn't go to a four year college immediately when I was, quote unquote, supposed to, when my peers were pursuing that avenue, that it would never happen and I would have ruined my life by not going to college on the quote unquote right timeline, which we now know is, is definitely a myth, but at the time felt very real. <laughs> and I spent, I spent my first year um, at a small school about 45 minutes away from my hometown. I was an English literature major. And for the most part, I enjoyed my classes. But in conjunction with that, I was working almost full-time back in my hometown. So there was a lot of driving back and forth, a lot of balancing different things. And at the time... I didn't feel like there was an understanding that I was a working student and that working was just as important to me as my academic classes are. And I think that that's been an interesting transition in popular discourse surrounding this even over the past couple of years. I can tell a big difference between how openly we talk about students who are working now. And it's not enough, but it's substantially more than I remember hearing. Um, And at the same time, I was dealing with what I now know to be anxiety and depression, which I did not have words for at the time. I was lost. I was unfulfilled. I was trying to figure out why I was working so hard to pay for an education that I just wasn't sure how it would factor into my life. And I felt a lot of guilt about that. So it ended up being the right decision for me to leave school. um, And I was out of college for a solid two years, which doesn't sound long. um, But at the time, (laughs) I didn't... At that age, it it certainly feels long, and it was hard because it was also during a time where social media was a really significant presence in my life, or at least starting to be. And so I could see that peers were having this experience or presenting a version of it that just hadn't resonated for me. They were finding friend groups. They were falling in love with courses of study. They were doing internships, and I felt profoundly inadequate that my experience had not matched what I thought the narrative of the college experience was supposed to be. And again, you know, it's funny to talk to some of those same peers now and realize that they were going through their own transitions because it's such a transitional time of life anyway. So I spent two years working full-time. I ended up getting a full-time job in public relations actually for a ballet company. And somehow I think it was actually via Twitter stumbled upon an advertisement for the school I ended up graduating from, um, and I finished my degree online full-time while working full-time, and I think that what that was opening up for me at the time, um, in addition to having a college experience that, you know, certainly had challenges but also had a lot of privilege, it opened up that there are more pathways to becoming an adult and shaping what your adult life is going to look like then was being talked about or at least that i was hearing and then that's something i started hearing more and more from my peers that there are different entry points into adulthood now that following one trajectory wasn't making sense anymore in the context of people's lives and so it it, that's i think actually kind of what started getting me interested in well how are we shaping pathways to adulthood and what are the barriers and and how are we feeling as we go through this time of life
0: absolutely Um... Before I continue on this train of thought, I just want to say um, you mentioned privilege. And one of the really great things about reading the book is that you constantly are referring to privilege. And as you're talking about these different traditional pathways, experiences, you are very conscious of that the whole time. So I just want to commend you on that.
1: Thank you. I think it's a really necessary part of this con- this and all conversations. Right. Mm-hmm. Certainly when we're talking about young adulthood. Mm-hmm.
0: It sh- should be the standard, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but so these traditional pathways, um, you know, there's sort of the, you go to a four-year college, you move away from home, you get the sort of, you know, quote-unquote respectable job, you know, all those things. And you do talk about this a lot in the book, how, you know, it's okay to stray off of this pathway. It's not a one-size-fits-all life, um, but there is, the, you know, there is this pressure to follow that pathway. And if you're not hitting these certain benchmarks, it seems like you're being judged, seems like you're being, you're falling behind and maybe it's easier said than done to actually just, you know, be okay with that. So what would your advice be for people who maybe aren't following these traditional Mm -hmm. pathways for just sort of getting out of their head about it?
1: I think that that's a tremendous question. And I think it helped me um, when I was kind of negotiating this for myself to go back to what experts and sociologists and psychologists who were studying this time of life were saying. It kind of helped ground me in fact instead of just how I was feeling. And we know that markers of what it means to be an adult has changed. Uh, You know, 50 some odd years ago, it was getting married, moving out of your parents' house, finishing school, entering the workforce and having kids. And it's not that people today aren't doing these things. It's just that we know they've shifted dramatically over the past 50 or so years, largely because of what has happened economically in America with rising costs of housing and education and childcare and Wages that just don't keep up. So I think that the solution there is kind of twofold. I think we have to start having conversations about policies that are going to make life better for everyone, not just young adults. Um, And to young adults sitting in, in the thick of it, I think we really need to get beyond the scope of what the traditional young adult experience is. Um, And this was something I heard over and over again from young people while I was reporting the book. You know, some of them were parents. They had been familial caregivers or breadwinners since they were in their teens. They had experienced housing insecurity. They weren't all living what remains kind of the popular conception of young adulthood. And I think that that's really important because I think until we look at the reality of somebody's experience and the circumstances or barriers that are sort of centered within it, we're not having a very robust conversation about this time of life. I think in terms of advice, I would give someone grappling with this personally It's really hard to tune out the noise of the script that you're supposed to be following, kind of the mentality of do these things in this order and everything's gonna turn out okay. But only you know what okay feels like in the context of your life. Maybe that's one dream job that you've been working toward and you think that's what's going to make you happy. Maybe it's just finding a job where you can sustain your life and you find fulfillment in other areas. I think kind of turning inward and having those hard conversations and sort of renegotiating values with yourself of what you want your life to be, the kind of world you want to help build for yourself as well as for other people is really critical to figuring out where to put not just your time and your energy, but also your self-worth which i think is a big part of that conversation definitely um so i want to talk about the pandemic of course um so first i want to ask
0: you at what point i guess when in relation to the pandemic did you start writing this book were you were you already working on it when the pandemic started
1: I, I was already working on it when the pandemic started. I think we were in the, the second draft and then realized somewhere right as um, students started being moved off campus last March was kind of the pivot point. I remember thinking, oh, we really need to go back to people. We have to talk about this. It's, it's going to re- change everything so radically and and underscore so many of the things we're already talking about that I realized, okay, I need to text a lot of people and I need to get back on the phone.
0: So did it, um, so I guess you're saying it changed some of the questions you were asking. Did it change anything about the overall message you wanted to convey?
1: It, it didn't change the message, but what stood out to me is when I did go back to the incredible young people that I talked to in this book, it took things that we had been talking about anyway and made them in a way feel more tangible and more urgent. I think because the pandemic disrupted so many timelines and so many milestones like graduations or getting your first, you know, quote unquote, real job and really underscored how dramatically inequities impact everyone, but especially in this time of life where young people were being laid off and they were frontline workers and they were losing family members. I think it underscored the fact that we need to be talking much more earnestly and and much more urgently about what it means to be a young person trying to make your way in the world right now.
0: I think that's been a common thread with the pandemic, just in in all areas, how it's really sort of brought to light these inequalities, imbalances that have always been there, but Mm -hmm. are kind of underscored by the pandemic, as you said.
1: Absolutely, I was thinking, I remember one conversation I I had with someone who was a full-time employee and a college student at the time talking about how, you know, not everybody was hanging out at their parents' house and baking banana bread. And (laughs) if if that was your experience, that's certainly one version of it, but you know, for a lot of young people, it was very scary and, and very inequitable work situations and, you know, working on the front lines and relying on tips to pay their rent, which is obviously a very different experience.
0: Do you see things going back to how they were once the pandemic sort of fades into the distance?
1: I hope not. I I hope that this is a pivot point in terms of how we think about a lot of issues, including hyper individualism that defines a lot of our politics and policy in America. And I think especially impacts young adulthood. I talked to a lot of young people that were kind of radically reconfiguring their own plans and in the aftermath of all of this they had you know planned to move across the country and have decided to stay closer to family they've changed career trajectories they've realized that you know at the end of the day some of the things we're taught to chase like gpas or accolades or so called dream jobs just really weren't how they wanted to spend their time on earth. So I, I, hope in general that this is not a return to normal because we know that including for young adults, normal was not working for a lot of people and, and really never has.
0: So you keep mentioning the, um, the various young adults that you talked to in the course of writing this book. So I want to talk a little bit about that. Um, so a lot of the interviews we do on here tend to be with you know, professors, they have their PhD and they're doing these studies in these fields and they're doing all these interviews. Um, which is not to say you're not an expert don't know what you're doing but you are much closer in both age and in you know in the concepts here to the people you were interviewing so was there sort of a peer-to-peer aspect of this that made people open up to you more
1: i would hope so I, I will say that i came out of a lot of conversations and i know this is an interesting thing for a journalist to say but feeling better feeling like I had talked to a friend or someone who was living through a similar experience and because the book interviews people who were primarily in their 20s there were so many echoes across conversations of things that I had felt or things that I had thought of. Um, For context I'm 27 and it was helpful that in addition to interviewing young adults I got to interview some truly incredible researchers and experts who kind of study this time of life and were able to take some of the feelings I was experiencing and, and that I was talking to people about and ground them in, you know, the economic realities or the psychological transitions that happened during this phase of life. Um, but I I will always be so thankful for peers and, and for sources that I spoke to that made time to share. So much of their lives with me because it, it's really brave to get on the phone with a stranger and, and talk about your hopes and your dreams and where you feel pressure. And I think that getting to speak to that many people about their own experiences has been one of the greatest gifts of my life.
0: I'll say as a 29 year old reading the book, I found a lot of it very helpful. So this goes both ways here. <laughs> So there was another thing you mentioned in the book that I did want to talk about that I think it's important for students particularly um, who are considering their career paths. You mentioned that a lot of students pursue their dream jobs, but how sometimes if you're working this dream job that can keep you from critiquing the structures that maybe don't have your best interests at heart that would take advantage of you. So could could you talk about that a little bit and what students should maybe watch out for as they consider their careers?
1: Absolutely. When I was reporting for the book, I came across really tremendous research that I quote in that chapter um, from Dr. Aaron A. Check, who studies the passion principle. And basically it's the idea that these career aspirations, these dream jobs can kind of neutralize our critiques of capitalism or labor structure. And it kind of puts, you know, the burden back on you as the employee. To create work-life balance for yourself, it turns it into a problem where, well, if I want to make more money, why don't I just work harder? And it becomes this very internalized thing. And you, it's easy to look up, I think, and, and realize that, you know, your rent and the food you eat and your health care and your identity are all wrapped up in this thing that you can definitely be fired from. And I think that that's another thing that became very clear in the pandemic is that you know even quote unquote safe jobs uh, turned out really not to be safe. And a lot of companies moved in the interest of protecting their bottom line instead of employees. So I think, I think the important thing about that isn't to negate the fact that having aspirations for how you wanna spend your time Um, is important. It's probably not something that that we're going to see some sort of massive shift away from. But I think the shift we will see is that more people are going to think of how they want to spend their time outside of work. And that that's going to be the priority. Um, I've gotten to see this when I've talked to young people who have realized that organizing is important to them and investing in their communities and mutual aid is where they're going to extract that fulfillment. Other people have talked about, you know, pursuing hobbies outside of work and they go to work because they need to pay bills, but they derive their fulfillment from other places. And I know in the context of my own life, that's been one of the most important lessons I've learned in regard to work is that you need multiple sources for self-worth or fulfillment or for learning in your life. It can't all come from this structure that we know isn't working for so many people anymore.
0: Definitely. Um, So to close off the conversation about the book, what would you want the main takeaway to be for students, um, whether they're in college, about to go to college, maybe just recently out of college, what would you want their takeaway to be?
1: Oh my gosh. I think the biggest takeaway is that your ordinary self is enough as is. And it sounds like kind of a twee point to make, I know, in the face of dream jobs and social media and, and conversations on economic shifts that have kind of <laughs> taken over um, really all generations, but certainly current younger ones. Um, it's very easy to always be chasing something. And I think the, the hardest part about that is that we're not just chasing these achievements or these benchmarks or these milestones. I think that we're chasing the kind of person that we imagine ourselves to be by meeting those things. And so I hope that the biggest takeaway from this book can be that so many of the feelings that young people are experiencing, whether it's loneliness or feeling lost or feeling like they're behind, we're not isolated in those things. And when we normalize them and when we talk about them out loud and kind of situate them in a larger structural and societal context, we realize that they're actually quite ordinary and that that's okay. Um, and so I think that I would I would want the feeling and the takeaway from this book to be maybe making people feel less alone in this process of figuring it out.
0: As you said, it might seem a bit twee, but I do think it's a very important takeaway.
1: <laughs> Thanks. I, I feel like it's one of those things we can't say enough, even if it does kind of sound like, like an Instagram cliche.
0: Yeah, no, it, it absolutely bears <laughs> repeating. So I do have one more question for you, actually.
1: Um, and we ask yeah. this question of all of our guests on the
0: podcast. So since we're primarily talking about teachers and students here, who was your favorite teacher?
1: Oh, my gosh. This is <laughs> such a great question. There are so many. And I know that I'm going to leave somebody out. But the first one that came to my mind um, was Go Mrs. Brinkley. Yeah, she was her name was Mrs. Triplett. Um, She was uh, actually my teacher for a couple years of elementary school, but I'm thinking primarily of second and first grade here. Um, She accepted that I was bad at math. (laughs) She made me. She made me do it, um, but she didn't make me feel bad for being bad at it. And instead, she would let me make stories at my desk in all of my free time where like, you know, the cardboard or construction paper became the cover and I had little illustrations and she always really encouraged me to do things like that and and thought that it was a really big deal and made me think, wow, like this is this is an important thing I'm doing. This little third grader sitting here writing stories. Um, and in terms of teachers, as I've grown up, I think that she has stayed with me, not just in her interactions with me, but all her students. She was so curious about the inner lives of the young people she worked with and she was so enthusiastic about what made us enthusiastic and i think that that's a takeaway that's kind of stayed with me throughout my adult life too
0: so maybe it's not made a construction paper but now or an ordinary age (laughs) we have a book
1: (laughs) exactly it it all paid off all of the trying to get out of math (laughs) has resulted in this
0: It all worked out in the end. Um, Well, Brainsford, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. It was an absolute pleasure.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much. It was so much fun talking to you.
0: Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Um, And good luck with everything with the book going on sale.
1: Thank you. Have a good rest of your day. You too. (laughs) Bye. Bye.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite third party app for more episodes. And be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.